The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Advantage of Innovation in AML, Guidance on Developing and Delivering Effective and Highly Personalized Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NVX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My name is Gail Robos. I'm a professor of medicine and the director of the leukemia program at Weill Cornell Medicine and the New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. So welcome to this symposium on AML. And it is my um, great honor and privilege, and I'm very excited to introduce friends and colleagues on the stage today. So we have Uma Barate from Ohio State, Naval Dauber from uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Amir Fati from the um, MGH Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So to launch into the topic of the evening. So a lot has been going on in AML. And I've actually been coming to ASCO for many years now, and it used to be um, that the AML sessions were pretty much in, in another building very far away, usually in the sub-basement with about three people there. And that has gotten very, very different. It's not just seven and three anymore. We have lots of new drugs since 2017. There are a lot of new toys uh, to play with. Not only the not only the um, the uh, drugs themselves, but I think the concepts of AML management are really changing. How to mix things together, when to mix them together, and it's not anymore just a discussion of what do you do during induction. What's the first thing you do? But there is a lot more attention, I would say, and controversy and difficulty, perhaps, in deciding what to do next. What if someone actually gets in remission? Then what are you going to do with them? And I think that the complexity of having Having these new agents has translated very quickly to complexity in the clinic, made more difficult by the pandemic, which kind of happened right in the middle of all of this, making it that much more difficult to, um, to figure out what to do with these new drugs. So we're going to try to um, touch on a lot of the complex controversies, and I'm going to challenge my colleagues to come up with some answers that would actually make things um, better in the clinic. I think these two presentations from Ash are really worth noting that on the one hand, when the four of us sit together and talk about AML, we feel like we're talking about lots of new things and controversies and action and different ways to manage the disease. And yet, if you look what's happening in the quote unquote real world, AML doesn't, it's not the same as the rest of oncology. So there are, there are randomized phase three trials in lung cancer, which are implemented 13 seconds after the data are, are dropped. And yet somehow in AML, the uptake of novel things has just not been so rapid. And if you look over here at a real-world analysis of more than 600 patients, this is from Midwest United States, 66% of patients over 75 didn't get any chemotherapy or alternative agents. And we were talking about this years and years and years ago when we thought we had nothing to do, that patients who were older, and don't forget AML has a median age of about 67 or 68 years, 
older patients not being offered therapy anymore is actually a pretty big disaster. And what we're hoping to do is get some of the new new things that we have to actually help people into the forefront. You can look down here also that um, looking at a couple of thousand patients, what happened with COVID? So I would say in the beginning of the pandemic, like with everything else, there were anticipated major modifications that might need to be made. But actually, we still want to stick to our paradigms of curing who we can cure with AML and sticking with the data and not have some of the things that might have been implemented very early in the pandemic stick unless there are data for them to stick. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the um, consolidation and even maintenance therapies um, that emerged during the uh, pandemic that, you know, what should stay and what shouldn't. So tonight's agenda, we've worked very hard to design this in a case-based manner to make it easy to remember and hopefully translate into the clinic because we're hoping the docs will recognize a patient um, in their own clinic and find some of this information relevant. We're going to have some brief discussions of the data and then launch into a discussion among us for each, um, for each patient. And we are going to launch into the first tumor board, and I'm going to turn it over to Uma. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So without further ado, let's start with our first patient. This is Allison. She's a 66-year-old woman with DeNova AML. She does have diabetes. She has a history of hypertension, some mobility issues. And when you see her in your clinic, you determine that her performance status is a 2. You do some baseline testing, and unfortunately, she does not have any targetable mutations. Her bone marrow biopsy shows 75% blast with a normal carrier type. So the question that she asks and the question that um, we'll try to answer based on our data is what is the best option for this patient? So let's look at what the NCCN guidelines say for somebody like Allison who's older than 60 and is not deemed a candidate for intensive therapy based on her performance status and her comorbidities. Um, as you can see, for AML without actionable mutations, the sort of category one preferred recommendation is azacitidine with venetoclax. I know um, most of us think that azacitidine and decitabine are interchangeable, but plus ven is category one because of the VLEA study, which we'll talk about briefly. And then you can see there's multiple other recommendations um, at a different sort of evidence-based level, including LODAC, then um, glastigib, gemtuzumab, and some other options. If the patient does have targetable mutations, such as IDH1 or 2, um, there are, are IDH-targeted therapies that will be discussed later in this presentation, but you also have um, good efficacy for HMA-VEN, um, specifically AZA-VEN in this setting. And then you also have FLT3 mutation um, targeted agents, but in a, in a patient like her who's not a candidate for intensive therapy, venetoclax plus HMA remains a category one indication in this setting. So let's talk a little bit about the study that led to this category one recommendation. This was the VLA trial. This was published in 2020, and now we've been using this in our um, hospitals and in our clinics now for almost two years. And again, just a quick refresher, this was a randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at AZA plus placebo, which was then standard of care for these patients, and comparing them to venetoclax plus azacitidine. And this showed pretty significant clinically meaningful improvement in response rates. So you can see the CR plus CRI rate was about 65% with this combination, as well as an overall survival of about five months um, in terms of benefit compared to AZA alone. 
So this is what led to the, the approval of this combination in this patient setting. Um, and now, I think for two years, we've really sort of learned the art of using this combination. And we'll talk a little bit about how to use this in the safest and most effective way in our patients. So what the study showed was, um, obviously, this is a combination that, you know, provided benefit for the patients, as we discussed, but it's not without its um, sort of adverse events, as were shown in the study. And I think the biggest one that we all need to really be careful about with our patients who um, are usually, you know, have multiple comorbidities and have um, a poorer performance status than our fit patients is febrile neutropenia. And in this study, more than almost half of the patients had febrile neutropenia or some sort of infection, which did um, result in either a dose modification or dose interruption. And um, in general, even though this is, you know, a, a, a regimen that's meant for patients that are less fit, I always counsel my patients to let them know that the first 30-day mortality of this regimen still remains 6 to 7%. So some of these things are important to remember when you're offering this therapy to our patient, Allison, who's sitting in front of you in the clinic. So in general, you know, what can we expect with this regimen? So we know that it can be administered in older patients or poor patients with comorbidities. As I mentioned, there is a 30-day mortality of 6 to 7%, so it's important to counsel your patients about that. And I think the other big take home for a therapy that is an outpatient, less intensive therapy is you really need to assess the bone marrow fairly quickly. And with ASA alone, we were used to doing this, you know, after three, four, five cycles. But here you really have to assess early after cycle one, and you need to act based on that bone marrow with either interrupting venetoclax or shorten the duration of venetoclax and or azacitidine or HMA in further um, in further cycles. And the other thing to counsel your patients is really important is technically this therapy is indefinite unless they cannot tolerate it or they show disease progression. So I always tell my patients there isn't a stopping point after four or six cycles if they get into remission. So in general, what are some of the practical things that you need to be aware of in your clinic? When you start this therapy, you really need to make sure the white blood cell count is to the point where TLS is not a big risk. Um, the package insert actually recommends a white cell count to be less than 25,000. If you do think there is a high risk of TLS, typically um, inpatient admission and treatment inpatient is recommended. I know some of us, or if not a lot of us, are doing this in the outpatient setting, but you really have to be cognizant of um, TLS in, in patients that you're treating outpatient. You do not dose reduce or modify in the first cycle. You, you treat them with full dose. But as I said before, you have to do a bone marrow biopsy at the end of the cycle and determine if the patient is in a morphological remission. If the patient is in a morphological remission, then you need to see what count recovery looks like. And depending on that is how you dose your subsequent cycles. So if the patient is in a morphological remission, you wait for count recovery, and then you start the patient on ASA, but the then dose will really be determined by how long it took for the patient to recover. You could start the same dose of then, which is what most of us do, but if the patient took, you know, seven or more days to recover their counts, you usually shorten the duration of venetoclax to 21 days, and you may actually shorten it even more to 14 days or more in subsequent cycles if count recovery is delayed. You can support the patient with GCSF once you ensure they're in a morphological remission. 
And once you've seen after cycle one, the patient is in a uh, morphological remission, then you can repeat a bone marrow biopsy, maybe after four cycles and then every six months, depending on what the clinical scenario looks like. The other big take home is prophylactic antibiotics, especially prophylactic antifungals. There is um, a lot of information in the package insert of how to dose reduce venetoclax based on the antifungal you give patients. If they are moderate SIP inhibitors, you typically dose the venetoclax at 100 milligrams instead of the full dose, which is 400. With pausoconazole, you're supposed to do 70, though I think a lot of us sort of stick to the 100 milligrams just for ease of dosing because the tablets come in 20. 50s, and 100s. So it's just easy to give the patient a 100 milligram tablet if they're on an antifungal. So with, with sort of all these um, caveats, I think we, we now know that this is a very effective therapy and can be safe if given um, with the adequate monitoring that I just discussed. Other VEN-based options, you have the VLEC data, which combine venetoclax with LODAC. This is not something that's used as commonly in the United States, but the big point that I wanted to make with this study, even though it did not reach a primary endpoint of overall survival benefit, is that um, a significant percentage of patients on this trial actually had prior HMA. If you look at the prior VLEA study, these were patients that had untreated AML and they were not exposed to previous hypomethylating agents. So if you have an older patient that had a hypomethylating agent, maybe for MDS, this is not um, a bad option, or this is something that you can definitely consider for that type of patient as well. So going back to our patient, this is, um, again, a 66-year-old woman with significant comorbidities, a poor performance status um, of two. We decided that based on no targetable mutations, that we would treat her with VEN-HMA as our first-line therapy. So I'll turn it back to Gail for some further discussion and questions. So I think you did a great job in clarifying a few key points. So number one, single agent, hypomethylating agents, right? We were looking at remission rates of what, 18%, 20% on a good day. You threw the number 60-something out there. So all of a sudden, you have older patients with a poor performance status who might have been offered exactly nothing and who are sometimes offered exactly nothing, who have a response rate in the 60-something percent zone. And overall survival, I don't know if you guys caught the x-axis, but it's not measured in minutes anymore. We actually have 12 months, 18 months, patients living 24 months. So I think that for us in the field who started a long time ago doing this, this has been an extraordinarily different conversation with patients. But you got to talk about toxicity and monitoring and management. So when you had older patients before and you were talking about bone marrow biopsies and hospitalizations and antifungals and lots of other things, and you were talking about a very poor overall survival with a low chance of response, all of those extra things seemed like a lot. Now they're actually part of the standard of care. So I want to ask my colleagues, um, I'll start with a novel from MD Anderson. What would you guys do for this patient? And how do you feel about the 28 days, 21 days? Because I kind of view all of this like making chocolate chip cookies. Somebody says to put in a pinch of something, they're not going to come out right. So how many days exactly do you do upfront post remission? Can we just call you? What do we do? Yeah, so absolutely. I think that's a great uh, question. I think the key point is to taking the chocolate chip analogies. 
you do not want to add too much chocolate. I think that's the key. So whether it's 21 or 28, uh, I don't think that's a big debate. There's never enough chocolate. There's never enough chocolate. Okay. (laughs) But I think the key is you don't want to go more than 28 days. So you don't want to continue beyond cycle one without assessing the bone marrow. And remember, the bone marrow is not really here for response assessment. Of course, we're getting that. But it's really to know if we have achieved suitable debulking of the disease or marrow aplasia, hypoplasia, to stop venetoclax and avoid prolonged myelosuppression. So at MD Anderson, we have done between 21, 28 days. We all know that even if you do the marrow around day 21, 22, it takes two, three days. But the idea is you really don't want to go 35, 42, 50 days with ven, and then you're going to have prolonged neutropenia. So it's what happens when leukemia is still there. And then what happens when leukemia is gone? That's the way to think of it. If there's leukemia still there, you're doing everything. You're transfusing, you're bringing in for fever, you're doing antifungals, you're doing antibiotics. Then you do a marrow. You don't need to talk to your pathologist to see if they can actually find one leukemia cell after three hours of looking. That's not the point. The point is to see if you have morphological clearance and can you stop at that point and maybe use some growth factors. Now, for Amir, so he and I have a long history of agitation at these types of meetings, so I'm going to start early and throw you the hard question that came in both on the iPad and the last two here. So it came in through the iPad that, well... Is anyone still a candidate for seven and three? So we're looking at this person, right? And we went down the Venesa pathway, but 66, all right, a little hypertension, a little mobility. Maybe she looked like a PS2 on that first day because she was roughed up in your emergency room with an all-nighter. Maybe she's actually a PS1. Could somebody like this get an intensive induction? And can you tell us a little bit about your trial that is exactly trying to answer that question? Thank you so much, Gail. Uh, Thank you uh, for having me, and I look forward to the banter again this year (laughs) Um, uh, in all good spirit. Um, So in terms of 7 and 3, I I don't think it's dead. Uh, I think, in fact, it's very much alive. It's the zombie of AML. It just keeps being there, and um, and, uh, it's uh, 30, 35 days in the hospital, and uh, some people, most people get a remission, and many don't. Uh, the challenge with this patient, just based on the two lines that I see here, is the performance status of two, mobility issues, the diabetes. I don't know how severe it is. But a lot of doctors make the argument, just as you were saying, if somebody has a performance status of two, is that because they were just diagnosed with AML? Was the guy playing golf, playing basketball, doesn't, or the gal, rather, playing tennis? Um, you know, and then all of a sudden got sick. Uh, and as a result of that, we're seeing all these things. And you could then make the argument that this patient should get traditional induction chemotherapy. Um, so I think there are certainly scenarios where this would make sense. But if this is a 66-year-old who has, let's say, chronic issues related to diabetes, is chronically impacted by comorbidity, I don't think there is much of a debate among leukemia experts. And thank you for the plug regarding the trial um, a lot of us around the country are trying to actually look at uh, uh, hypomethylating agents and venetoclax in younger patients. Again, this is not FDA-approved. It's not on label. But we're doing a randomized study of comparing induction chemotherapy versus azacitidine and venetoclax uh, for induction-eligible, transplant-eligible patients to see if we can move uh, some of the treatment of AML after three and a half, four decades outside of the hospital into the clinic 
um, where it is better tolerated. And uh, Uma Barate just showed pretty amazing data, uh, a remission percentage in the mid-60s. I don't think a lot of times you can ask for more than that uh, if from traditional uh, 7 and 3. So I think it's, it's time to really study that, but it's not yet ready for prime time. We hope to accrue robustly and have answers soon, hopefully. And you should absolutely send your patients for participation in this trial and let the universe or the computer or whatever you believe in make the decision between which regimen to get, because we may not have the right answer. And he brought up tennis only because I ruptured my Achilles earlier this year, and he wants to give me PTSD talking about tennis. I will get you back. But I'm going to move on, and I'm going to say, all right. But what if this patient that we were just talking about, what if she actually had FLT3 mutated AML and we had decided that actually those health issues weren't so challenging? She's healthy. She's 66. May have had a couple of things, but not too bad. And she's got a newly diagnosed FLT3 with baseline testing showing that. And keep in mind that I showed you earlier that sometimes we aren't even getting mutational testing on AML patients, although that is absolutely the standard of care. So please remember to get it. She's got Blast, normal karyotype, FLT3. So what is going to be the best option for this patient? And I'm going to toss it to Nabil. All right. Thank you very much, Gail. So, yeah, we're going to talk about this patient, uh, what's the established current standard, and then what is kind of emerging uh, and what we think could potentially happen in the future. So FLT3-mutated AML remains one of the most aggressive subtypes of acute myeloid leukemia. These patients often present with elevated white count, proliferative disease, high blast, uh, often when they come in, uh, most split 3 patients actually look like a PS2 or 3 because their white count is 60,000, 70,000. Many times they have an ongoing infection, very fatigued, severely thrombocytopenic. Now, a lot of times those patients improve with some hydria count reduction, etc. And so the question is always, do we go for intensive chemo or lower-intensity novel options? And I'll kind of discuss those two. So for intensive chemo at this time, the standard FDA-approved uh, grade one uh, approach is to use induction therapy, anthracycline cytarabine, with the FLT3 multikinase inhibitor, mitostorin. This was based on the phase three ratify study that showed a survival benefit for mitostorin with intensive chemo versus placebo intensive chemo and FLT3 mutated AML. These are the data from the ratify study. Here you see that there is survival, but I would challenge you to put your thumb between those two lines. So it's still important. It proved I think what conceptually 20 years from now, we're all going to be looking back and saying this was the first study that showed targeted therapy benefit in AML. And I think that's why it's still a very important study. But we can all see that the survival benefit is there, but modest. Now, I think the next curve starts showing us what we can achieve when we do a total therapy sort of approach. I'm borrowing lingo from myeloma. So you know the mutation, you use the intensive chemo, you have the transplant, you move to transplant. And this does not include post-transplant maintenance, which we will discuss later. But already you can start seeing if you do the full sequence of events, you're starting to now get into 60, 70% long-term survival in a disease that just 20 years ago when it was first diagnosed and explained, the FLT3-mutated AML had a survival of only 20, 25%. So definitely a progress if you can do the whole sequence of events. And again, I think this is why uh, having these patients in centers where transplant is available and things can move quickly is going to be critical. And of course, getting them on clinical trials to further move that curve up. So now one of the very exciting data sets that we're all looking forward to in the next week, in fact, is going to be the frontline second phase three study that we know has shown a positive result based on the press release that you see here. 
many of us have seen the data, but it's not public, so it, it will be available at the EHA meeting. Uh, and uh, I think there will be a lot of discussion with this as to now are we going to use quizartinib frontline for all patients? Are we going to use it in certain subset of patients, ITD patients, TKD patients, maybe still mitostorin? And that, I think, will continue for the next six to eight months. But nonetheless, I think it's great to have a second-generation uh, FLT3 inhibitor, quizartinib, giratritinib, have shown great potency preclinically and single agents in clinic compared to mitostorin serofinib. And so we're hoping that this will be reflected uh, in the upcoming data set. So look out for this at the EHA meeting. So now, moving towards other novel combos. So HMA-VEN, I think, is a fantastic backbone, uh, and there are a lot of efforts to try and build on it, whether it's with targeted therapies, FLT3-IDH, or immunotherapy, CD47, and others. And uh, here you see that although the response rates, the remission rates, are quite encouraging in FLT3-mutated, somewhere between 65-70%, so actually not that different from the general population, the survival seems to start dropping, which makes sense because the kinase mutations are very powerful and they can often drive resistance if you don't have a targeted therapy on board. Here you see the survival is still better than AZA. I don't think anybody argues with that. We would definitely use AZAVEN over AZA in any condition, but you start seeing survival about 11 and a half months in the ITD. In the TKD, actually, it still seems to do quite well. This was actually just published in uh, 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 Clinical Cancer Research by Marina Konopleva for those who want the details. So the question is, what can we start doing to maybe try to move uh, beyond this? And I think the big question is, do you sequence or do you combine? And I think that's what we're going to find out in the next three to four years with clinical trials. So our approach at MD Anderson has been to move with combos. Some of the groups are doing that. Others are looking at sequencing. And then I think we have to review the data and see what will be optimal. So one of the approaches here is looking at the combination of azacidine, benetoclax with the approved drug giratritinib, the three-drug combination. Early data, this was shown by Nick Short, uh, one of my colleagues at the ASH meeting, showing very high remission rate, 16 on 16 patients. And what was really interesting is that 15 of those 16 achieved a full CR. But that being said, the count recovery is delayed. And so it's very important to look at it carefully. Now, this uh, follow-up is early, and so the overall survival here uh, is shorter. There will be an update coming at the ASH meeting, where now we have a two-year survival that is uh, much better, uh, and we will have to continue. And there are actually randomized studies that will be looking at this going forward. Uh, meanwhile, we also did this uh, retrospective analysis, which was just published in Blood Cancer Journal with Musa Yilmaz and our colleagues, where we looked at the triple therapy approaches, so HMA, VEN, with a FLT3 inhibitor, either serofinib or giratritinib, or the two commonly ones used at MD Anderson, versus HMA FLT3 that we have been using quite a bit on trials. So this is not prospective. This is retrospective comparison. And there you can start seeing that with the doublet, you're seeing higher remission rates. In fact, the true CR rate was also 65 versus 30%, and also molecular clearance and flow. So we believe that the triple therapy is effective. The survival is starting to look promising. Uh, but we still need to look at this in randomized studies, and I think that is going to be the next step. Now, that being said, I think it's very important to highlight here that this is a more myelosuppressive regimen, and, and I think people have to be very careful. Actually, I was giving a talk today to a group in Lithuania, and people started saying, can we use this instead of intensive chemo? Absolutely not. I do not think we're ready for that. We do not have five-year survival data. We do not have the mature data. I think at this point, if one is to use this, ideally it should be done on a clinical trial. So a great trial to refer patients who have FLT3-mutated AML. And also, I don't show it here, but we're really curtailing the durations of therapy. So venetoclax is 14 days, 
giltritinib is 80 milligrams, and this was after trying the four doses, which were too myelosuppressive. So it's a work in progress, but I think uh, over time, this may be one approach uh, to move forward in the FLT3-mutated AML. And the next step would be then, if we have mature data, see if we can look at such triplets versus intensive chemo and randomized study as Amir doing for HMA-VEN versus 3 plus 7. But we have to do this one step at a time and not jump ahead too far. And with that, I would turn it back to Gil. Um, so we have a FLT3. We have the um, uh, we have the recommendations that you have talked about. But I think you brought up you brought up a couple of things that I really want to um, that I really want to dig into. So one of it is getting back to that that how to. And you just said at the end, and I think it's really important. So we have data. We know how to use azacitidine and venetoclax. If you were selecting that regimen for the patient, we know that even though neither of those is designated specifically as a FLT3 inhibitor, you talked about it as having efficacy, right? So I think there was an important learning point there that just because there is a mutation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the drug has to be an inhibitor of that mutation, right? We didn't even know about FLT3 mutations, and 7 and 3 got lots of people into remission. So I think you segued that into saying, don't just jump in and add things. Mitostorin, giltaritinib, these are drugs that require a lot of manipulation. And I can tell you, because I know this from talking to your colleagues too, MD Anderson is making changes continuously in the dosing of all of the concomitant medications. So you're working on the ASH presentation and you're trying to do 10 days of this and 12 days of this and one day of this and three days of that. And you guys have already dumped it and moved on. So cautionary tale. At MGH. Are you already on triplets or are you waiting for data? If you've got a FLIP3 in the patient in who would be Azaven FLIP3, are you adding it off study? I think the answer to that question is that in time, I think we're going to have to use more than two agents in FLIP3 mutated patients who are older and not functionally fit. I mean, I'll uh, briefly mention two patients I recently had, both of whom I unsuccessfully rare with me, but unsuccessfully treated, unfortunately. Um, I had one patient who had FLT3 AML, um, and I thought that, you know, I couldn't get him uh, the FLT3 inhibitor in time, so I put him on azovenetoclax, hoping that it would control his disease, and it did. Controlled his disease for approximately 26 days, and then it really didn't control his disease. His white count shot up and got into trouble, ended up in the ICU with DIC, and went on kiltaritinib. Had another patient who had, you know, relatively low-level FLT3, but not that low. You know, something like I think 20% um, uh, variant allelic fraction. I decided that she was perhaps a little less robust than I would like uh, for HMA Ven, and I put her on HMA gilteridinib, and she didn't respond fully, probably because her disease were, was very heterogeneous. Um, and after about four cycles, I had to let that go and switch over to HMA-VEN, and now she is in a remission. So that just goes to show you that with this disease in particular, FLT3 is oftentimes a late alteration. The disease ends up being quite heterogeneous, and inhibiting it alone may not do the trick in addition to HMA. So how do we do uh, the combination? Well, I think as, as uh, Novel mentioned, I mean, a, a lot of fancy footwork, right? Uh, reducing the dose, changing the schedule. Another option that I think people have talked about, and I think I know Nahal and I have talked about this, is maybe doing HMA-VEN and introducing gilteritinib later um, so that you don't have that marrow uh, suppression and then, you know, you, you buy yourself the space and time to have efficacy. But the answer to your question after that meandering response is that we end up giving uh, HMA-VEN 
most of the time. And then for second line, we give gilteritinib because of the most recent phase three data with lacewing. So if I'm trying to figure out when to do a bone marrow biopsy on an AML patient, I think I just throw myself off a bridge, right? Because I learned in med school, I think, that it was day 14, except some centers do day 21. But now these guys are telling me for HMA-VEN that it's either day 21 or day 28, depending, I suppose, on your mood. And now what is going to happen? So when on a FLT3 mutated patient who is on intensive chemotherapy plus a FLT3 inhibitor intensive chemo plus a FLT3 inhibitor, ratify. Uma, when do we do a marrow on that patient to see if they're clear? So um, we really try to mimic the the ratify study. However, you know, if you remember what Novel presented with the ratify study, mitostorin was given from day 8 to day 21. So we actually do delay the bone marrow biopsy. We do not do it on day 14. We actually do do it, you know, after day 21. So day 22, 23, you know, whenever, um, if it's not a weekend, so on and so forth, because we want to sort of see the effect of the full extent of the 7 plus 3 plus the FLT3 inhibitor. So the right answer here, what I was trying to get to, which you very kindly gave, which is it's complicated and you have to actually follow the clinical trial that you're trying to follow when you're back to my chocolate chip cookies, which I never actually make, but I'm, I'm, it's working, the analogy, that if you want it to come out right, you actually have to look backwards to what the trialists were doing, because otherwise you may end up giving either too much or too little therapy to the patient. So... I want to move on to the next um, tumor board question, which is now going to switch to a different mutation. So we just were talking about FLT3. Now we're going to talk about a newly diagnosed older patient with an IDH mutation. So this is Mark, a 72-year-old with a history of hypertension, AFib, progressive thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, and a good performance status, but he's got an IDH1 mutation. And I'm going to toss the world of IDH to Amir. All right. Let's see if we can help Mark out. So uh, the current regulatory status in the United States, we have uh, two IDH inhibitors, not just to bring everybody um, to the current uh, uh, state with IDH mutations. IDH stands for isocitrate dehydrogenates. Um, we all have IDH enzymes, IDH1, IDH2 in the cell and mitochondria respectively. They um, are key enzymes in the Krebs cycle. Uh, IDH converts isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, releasing energy for uh, set compartments. But when things go wrong and you have the mutation, you actually have the an alternative uh, catalysis uh, of a reaction that converts alpha-ketoglutarate to 2-HG, 2-hydroxyglutarate, which is an oncometabolite, uh, suppresses key enzymes such as TET, leading to an a hypermethylated phenotype, myeloid um, uh, uh, maturation uh, blockage, and the development of myeloid malignancies like MDS and AML. So these IDH inhibitors, they inhibit uh, aberrant IDH enzymes, lead to a suppression of 2-HG, and as a result, in a sizable proportion of patients, lead to a response, and that response can take time. The first drug that came out was anacitinib uh, that you can see here. It's, uh, it was and is uh, approved for relapsed refractory IDH2-mutated AML based on single-arm phase one, phase two studies. IDH1 inhibitor ivocitinib, which followed, has had a more of an exciting regulatory uh, development over the course of the last few years. It was approved for relapsed refractory IDH1-mutated AML, then approved for newly diagnosed um, uh, AML in patients who weren't eligible for induction as monotherapy, and just 
off, hot off the press, I think about a week or so ago, uh, approved in combination uh, with um, azacitidine uh, for newly diagnosed patients uh, who are not um, uh, eligible for intensive therapy. And uh, as of for that reason, it's uh, not yet, but probably shortly will be included in guidelines. Uh, this is the NCCN guidelines looking at IDH1 and IDH2 mutations, preferred pathway um, for upfront uh, therapy. Um, and I'll get into why venetoclax and HMA uh, might be a good route to go, um, but there are various options that you can try. So let's talk about the Phase three Agile uh, study, which is the most recent exciting development in the realm of uh, IDH mutations. Uh, this was a, a phase three study conducted predominantly in Europe that uh, in a double-blind, one-to-one randomized fashion, split up 392 patients, um, uh, 18 years and up with AML IDH1 mutated ECOG of zero to two, which I guess covers that ECOG patient of two that we talked about previously, but predominantly uh, older patients and gave them either IVO and ASA or gave them placebo uh, and ASA. And the study was uh, ridiculously positive. Uh, it was initially supposed to have the endpoint of overall survival. That changed in the middle. They uh, got event-free survival as the primary endpoint. That was very positive, as can be seen here. Uh, part of the reason why the curves sort of immediately fall off is because they counted a lack of response at, uh, I believe, six months uh, to be an event. So almost immediately, a sizable proportion of patients uh, were taken off that uh, curve. And then subsequently, there was a big difference, obviously, between the placebo and the ivocidinib arm. And then you have overall survival there, um, uh, amazing uh, overall survival. Um, the median overall survival, I believe, was 24 months, which is... Um, as my teenage self would say, redonkulous. So I think that is um, an amazing uh, feat uh, for this uh, relatively small population of patients who have IDH1 uh, mutations. Uh, here we have the data on complete remission and CRI. So a couple of things I just want to briefly point out, hopefully briefly, um, is that the composite remission rate that you can see here is 54%. That's a little bit lower than what we saw with Viali, right? So Viali was like the mid-60s. But a lot of these patients have... Uh, also, partial remission, morphologic leukemia-free state, stable disease. This is kind of what we saw with IDH monotherapy. Patients who did not have the traditional marrow remissions continued to respond, mainly because they had less transfusional dependence, less time in the hospital, less complications of therapy. And that probably ultimately translated to better survival over time. Um, as far as safety, um, there was not as much of a, a marrow suppression signal with uh, Agile as we saw with Viali, as uh, is probably not surprising. These IDH inhibitors do not work in terms of with uh, sort of a traditional cytotoxic mechanism of action, but rather have a differentiating role. So although there was some cytopenia, there was not much of it. In fact, there was more leukocytosis uh, uh, in the uh, ivacidinib arm, probably related to differentiation. So some practical considerations. Uh, Uma went through some of the practical considerations with venetoclax. There are some also with IDH inhibitors. There is less uh, uh, non-hematologic toxicity, but there are some. So, so ivocidinum in particular can prolong the QT. It can have rarely GI side effects. Uh, I haven't had too much trouble in general with these rare non-hematologic toxicities. QT prolongation is not rare, but I haven't had, let's say, torsade or other arrhythmias in, in my patients whom I've treated. 
but it takes time to respond. And that's important. So if, you know, people will oftentimes ask me, if you have an older patient who's IDH1 mutated, what are you going to do? Are you going to give them HMA VEN because of their great response? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Among IDH mutated patients with HMA VEN, or are you going to give them IVO um, and azacitin given these results? Well, I think there is something to say about that. If somebody's proliferative, I think it's hard sometimes to wait three, four months, six months. Um, so for those patients, maybe HMA VEN is the better choice. Uh, for other patients, if they have QT issues or if you're worried about differentiation or uh, there are other concerns that come to mind, uh, certainly concurrent drugs, you, you may choose one or the other. But there are some areas that uh, you may consider one combination over the other. Differentiation syndrome, um, I'll refer you to the literature that's here, but IDH inhibitors are differentiating agents. So they can lead through their mechanism of action, the suppression of 2-HG, uh, the hypermethylated phenotype, uh, releasing that uh, block in differentiation. Myeloid cells begin to mature. Oftentimes that can lead to a cytokine-mediated inflammatory process of pleural effusions, infiltrates, fevers, rash. Sometimes it's annoying. Sometimes it's deadly. When it's deadly, you need to recognize it. Well, actually, always you need to recognize it so that it doesn't become deadly. And, and the treatment of choice, if you're really worried about it, is dexamethasone um, and not necessarily stopping the drug because the half-life of these drugs is very long. So if you just stop the drug and wait, the patient may be in the ICU uh, um, before you get things into a better shape. So why did I say that azacitidine and venetoclax may be a better Maybe a good choice for IDH-mutated patients. Well, this is why. Among all the molecular subtypes that was looked at in BIOLE-A, the IDH-mutated patients seemed to do the best. You know, I think the median overall survival among these patients was 18 months. This was uh, presented by Dan Pollier at ASH a couple of years ago, and actually I think published it in Clinical Cancer Research, so I I refer you to that paper. I mean, these are the IDH-mutated patients, the same curve of Venaza versus placebo-Aza. That's a chasm. Forget about the finger length that Novel just pointed to. This is Hulk's finger or, you know, uh, Cyclops' finger or whatever. But, um, and, and, the, and the chasm is even broader for IDH1-mutated uh, patients. So for whatever reason, IDH1-mutated patients, it seems, do really well with the combination of A's of N. All right, let's get to the triplets and quadruplets. Uh, well, not quadruplets yet, just triplets. Um, and this is, again, work done at the MD Anderson uh, looking at ivocytinib, then plus or minus AZA in IDH1 mutated patients, as can be seen here. Um, the most impressive curve are, are those patients who received uh, the three drugs together, IVO, VEN, and AZA at the top there, the blue line. Um, and there's also some data, again, small number. And I believe um, Lakowitz uh, and team are also presenting this at this meeting here, uh, an update uh, in this cohort. So it'd be interesting to sort of look and see how these patients continue to do. But again, interesting data. All right. So if you're going to add everything to everything, why don't you add uh, 7 and 3 to ivocidinib or anacidinib and see what happens? Well, it's been done. Uh, we were a part of that study as well. I think the remission rates are listed here, 77% for IVO, 74% for ENA. I have to say that those who had secondary AML did markedly worse than those who had de novo AML, uh, who did markedly better in, in comparison. But this was phase one uh, and expansion study, so the data is still very much uh, can be questioned in terms of whether it's better than 7 and 3. What I can say is that there is a European HOVON study that is doing a placebo-controlled study of traditional induction plus either IDH1 or IDH2 inhibition uh, to see if there is actually a benefit to adding IDH inhibition to traditional induction. So hang on tight. Let's see what that shows. Um, 
if IDH, if uh, induction is still here by the time that finishes. We'll see. Um, again, not FDA approved. Don't listen to what I just said. So other uh, VEN-based options. Uh, so flag IDA uh, and VEN. Um, so uh, this, uh, look at that curve, very impressive, right? So you have an 87% 24-month uh, uh, overall survival, um, a pretty cool survival curve among the patients, you know, studied again at the MD Anderson. But um, this, if I, uh, and Novel can correct me here, but this took also a lot of uh, work in order to get the venetoclax down to a schedule and duration that really made sense for patients. We had a similar uh, trial also in Boston looking at 7 and 3 and venetoclax. Again, uh, the combination can be very marrow suppressive, but when you get to where you need to get to, you can get a lot, a high rate of remission and MRD clearance. So, uh, and perhaps there is some signal again with IDH-mutated patients who uh, are eligible for intensive therapies. So I think I went through everything there, so I'll hand it over to Gail. So you did. So here's my problem. I'm in my office. I have 40 patients. Half of them have colon cancer and elevated PT and lung cancer, and now I got an IDH AML patient. Are you kidding me with all of what you just said? So IDH mutations are in six to ten percent of patients. That's six to ten percent of AML patients. So this is a rare disease, and you're giving me six percent of them, maybe eight nine on a good day, have IDH mutations. And I don't even know how to get an IDH mutation. Maybe my lab does a PCR. Maybe it's doing sequencing that'll come back in two weeks. So help me. Who am I waiting for? You just told me that Azaven solves this problem. Who, who am I waiting for? And how am I getting the test back? And who am I waiting for? There are lots of data that suggests that it's okay to wait especially in older AML patients, to wait for the sequencing data to come back. This is different from what we all learned, that you can't go home before treating an AML patient. All right, you can wait. But how long do I have to wait? Do I have to wait? I've got other things that work that I can get them started and get moving. Yeah, I can't help with the lung cancer. But uh, as far as the IDH1 uh, patient, I agree. It's 5 to 10% of patients. Um, it's a low number of patients. But whether it's IDH1, IDH2, FLT3-TKD, FLT3-ITD, this is a problem that academic centers and local community practices uh, deal with, uh, getting diagnostics back in time. Um, and I cannot really think of one place that I've talked to that has this down like, like machine work. It should be, it, but it's not. And especially during COVID, we, you know, with uh, uh, relative challenges with staffing, there, there are uh, difficulties getting results back on a timely basis. And we've been in situations where um, not only is uh, getting the results back uh, challenging, but actually getting the medication approved and available for patients mm -hmm. can be challenging. So that may uh, trigger you to initiate, for example, one or the other and have something else in your back pocket. So then the overriding question is, do you give aza-ivocidinib, hope for a 24-month overall survival, or do you give aza-ven, get 18 months, and then in the back end when the patient relapses, try and see if you can get the rest with ivocidin and monotherapy, um, that there's nothing to support that one way or another, but it's an excellent question. Um, I do think we need good, rapid PCR testing for those four markers, IDH1, IDH2, FLT3, ITD, and TKD. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a very useful clinical point that to discuss with your lab, with your pathologist, that that rapid PCR really helps. And it, sequencing takes everybody 
um, other than at MD Anderson. It takes, it takes some time, but that rapid PCR is really, really helpful. And the promising news is that there's lots of good stuff. These are very important mutations. There are different ways to get patients to better outcomes. And I do think also for clinicians who may not be dealing with this all the time, it's useful to get very familiar and expert with one and not necessarily kind of do one different regimen for each patient maybe, but get some experience. Navel, I want to give you one quick question that just came in from the um, audience, which was, do you in your clinical practice find that the IDH1s have a duration of response that is different than the IDH2s if they get Venasa? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think great discussion. So with uh, IDH1 versus IDH2, there's a couple of interesting things. So historically, IDH1 was always thought to be kind of a more inferior marker. If you look at the intensive chemo 3 plus 7 data, they tend to do worse. But then when we added IVO to the 3 plus 7, it was interesting. We started seeing survival actually better than with IDH2. And similarly with HMAVEN, as uh, Amir mentioned, the survival with IDH1, again, these are not randomized, not powered, two subsets, both with about 30 patients. So it's hard to make a strong conclusion but it does look better. So I actually think there may be some differences in the drugs. I think with IVO, somehow we are seeing a little bit longer duration, a little bit more activity, and that could be the difference um, in that case. And, and I think, you know, to another point, a lot of what we're discussing starts to suggest really that acute myeloid leukemia probably does have to be treated in centers with expertise because things are getting much more complicated. I don't know if this is something that we used to do 20 years ago. It's 3 plus 7 versus HMA. So I would encourage people to at least consult with uh, their expert colleagues on these cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can all give um, emails and cell phones for just those kinds of consults. And I'm going to toss it back to you, actually, uh, Novel, to talk about TP53. So what if or the patient that we had been talking about had, instead of an IDH, 72-year-old um, with a reasonably good performance status, but now he's got poor risk cytogenetics and a TP53? What are you going to do here? Okay, yeah, thank you. So this is kind of going from one of the best subsets, IDH and NPM1, to unfortunately what still remains the worst subset, the TP53. So this is some of the uh, data that I think is very sobering and depressing, and hopefully five to ten years from now we'll be able to change this. But currently, as you see, TP53 mutated, irrespective of age and irrespective, really, of whether they're AML, MDS. I think this is something that as a community, we all need to push for. There have been recent papers. This is one by Grob. There are other papers coming out showing that if you have more than 5% blast with TP53, it doesn't really matter if you're, quote, unquote, MDS with 16% or AML with 22%. So this is a uh, mutation that really drives the biology and prognosis. doesn't really matter what your exact blast percentage is. Um, what about HMA-VEN? You know, just as we discussed with IDH, it does quite well. One can debate whether it's as good or better than HMA-IDH. FLIP3, it still has good responses. Survival is decent. Uh, but here, as you see, unfortunately, I think we're now struggling with the question with HMA-VEN is adding anything to HMA. So the response rates, yes, look encouraging, 55%, 56%, but the survival is really six months. And now it's been shown in three different data sets. The top one is the subset from the phase 1B multicenter study. The bottom is we said, well, let's try DAC 10 days because there was data that DAC 10 days could improve outcome in TP53. But unfortunately, DAC 10 venetoclides did not show improved survival. And most recently, Dan Polio showed a subset of the Viale study, which also shows median survival of six months. So 
this is really what you get with HMA alone, about six, seven months. And so we don't know if when is adding much. Now, there may be some response benefit, and one could argue if you're trying to take somebody to transplant quickly, younger, fitter patient, one could try to use Ven. But the bottom line is we need to try to find other drugs, and there's a lot of efforts ongoing that I'll discuss. Uh, this is now showing uh, the evidence with transplant. So you see that with transplant, there does seem to be some benefit uh, in these patients, but overall, the two-year survival is still less than 20%. Now it's all about half a glass, half empty, glass half full. Without transplant, I would argue it's even less than that, less than 10%. So I think we still consider transplant, especially in those people who achieve a remission, are fit, have a donor available, and can be moved to transplant. But transplant is clearly not going to solve the problem. And so I think maintenance approaches that we're going to talk about even post-transplant may come into play uh, in this setting. So now talking about some of the newer uh, drugs. So CPX351 was an agent that was approved in this high-risk group, therapy-related AML, AML from MDS, secondary AML. So, of course, a lot of these patients have DP53, 40 50%. And the big question was, is CPX working in that group as well? And again, when you look at this subset, unfortunately, in the TP53 mutated, when you look at CPX versus 7 plus 3, it's not showing that much of an improvement, 5.7 versus 5.1. Uh, so one could try it again if you're trying to get people to transplant, but TP53 seems to still be a, a big resistance factor. Now we're looking at newer agents. There's really two pathways that are being explored in TP53, CD47, which is an immune pathway but not the T-cell immune pathways that we're all familiar with from solid tumor. Here you're blocking the macrophage immune checkpoint called CD47 serp alpha, and by blocking that inhibitory interaction, the macrophages are so-called unleashed to attack leukemia cells. And this was a lot of nice work done by Ravi Majeri, Irv Wiseman, over the last decade, which has led to this drug being evaluated in lymphoma, AML, MDS, and other diseases. So this is the updated data that actually uh, the abstract was just released a few days ago, and it will be presented tomorrow uh, in a poster discussion looking at the final phase 1B set, the phase 3s are ongoing, of uh, HMA with MAGRO and TP53 mutated AML. You see here the age of these patients. These are all older patients with adverse cytogenetics, as you would expect in most of this uh, population. Uh, an overall response rate here is about 50%, with the CR rate of 33 34% which is a little better than HMA event, but I think what we need to look at is the survival with time. Here it's looking encouraging at close to around 11 months. So if that holds true in a phase three, then there could be a potential path for this. And also in MDS, this drug is being evaluated in a phase three, which should be reading out later this year. Um, in the MD Anderson fashion, we're also looking at combinations because neither of these, as you can see, is looks like it's going to cure a lot of patients. You may improve median survivals and meet regulatory endpoints, but are you going to really cure people? And so the effort was, well, HMA then seems to improve response, even though it's not durable. HMA macro has some activity. Could you improve that? Now, the early data that we showed seems that, yes, the CR rates look quite encouraging with MRD clearance, and the study is ongoing and will be updated. And, in fact, there is a Phase three study also looking at this combination, HMA then macro versus HMA event, but for all patients across the board. And so that will be interesting to see in the near future. So a lot of efforts ongoing at this time, no conclusive answer. And uh, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah. So in all caps, clinical trial, if at all possible for these patients? Absolutely. Does everybody on the panel agree with that? Okay. Yep. I have a couple of questions. 
Amir, at MGH, would you look at the variant allele fraction and potential reductions in that as a decision tree in terms of transplant? Because transplant looks ugly, too, for these patients, and it's an awful lot of additional burden and toxicity. So does it matter if they started out with something and then got better or cleared it before transplant? Yeah, I, I think it's a tricky business. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get a very young patient and um, your heart breaks. You know, you, you're trying to get them into a nice remission, but the, the, the fraction is not coming down. Are you going to not try to get them to transplant to give them a chance, although, you know, the likelihood of success is low? And I think in that scenario, I, I would probably proceed with transplant. Having said that, um, there is some data, I think the majority of it, I think coming out on Moffitt, um, looking at uh, clearance of uh, MRD in both MDS and AML uh, in, in terms of P53 clearing prior to transplant having better success. So, but then it's the whole chicken or the egg, right? Are those patients who are clearing it just have better sort of disease profiles and they would otherwise do well with transplant? Or is the actual way of getting rid of the MRD the reason why they do so well. So we don't really know. And also P53 in, in some ways is almost uniformly bad, but there are uh, some other aspects to it, right? I mean, I think the location of the P53, the variant allelic fraction, concurrent mutations, those are things that also people think may uh, play a role. So when I have somebody on a VEN-HMA regimen or some other trial, if, uh, if their VAF is coming down, I don't get in the way. So I just keep trying to get them down to as low as possible and then transplant them in the hopes that they will clear it and do better. But do I take patients to transplant who still have disease in terms of MRD? I do, because there isn't anything better. Um, Uma, somebody in the audience has a fit 53-year-old with a TP53 and an IDH2. What do you want to do with that one? So I, I think this is really hard, and I think we are struggling with, how to approach patients that, you know, have these <clears throat> concurrent mutations. In general, um, when there's a targetable mutation, you know, that, that's something that we would want to target. Um, if the patient is fit, I think, you know, Amir Fathi talked about the trial of trying to do induction or, or trying to address the question. We know that IDH-mutated patients do really well with Ben-HMA. Um, we also know that P53 mutation patients do well initially, but not overall. Um, and in a fit patient, you know, you don't really have convincing, you know, randomized data of adding an IDH um, inhibitor to induction. So I think the answer would, for me, would personally be either 7 plus 3 um, and to get them to transplant. Or if I have a trial, I mean, we, all, we always prioritize trials before anything but if 7 plus 3 was not an option or, you know, we had a discussion, maybe put them on Amir's trial. Um, or I think VEN-HMA is not an unreasonable option in this patient. We know that the IDH mutation will hopefully, you know, trump. Hopefully the P53 mutation is low. The VAF is low. We have data showing low VAF patients actually may do a little better than high VAF patients. And maybe the IDH mutation trumps that and they get a good response. Yeah, I think that the word fit 
doesn't mean you can't use HMA Ven, even though that's not exactly what the label says. So yeah, if you, I'll actually just make a comment here, and, and as a disclaimer, and, uh, there'll be data coming out. Courtney's looked at this subset of patients. We had about 30 or so TP53 IDH. It's not that uncommon, about 9%. And actually, IDH inhibitors work really well as well. So I think for this person, using uh, HMA Ven, HMA IDH, the combination would be a very, very good option. I think Amir made a very good point about TP53. We all have to remember it's not made equal. So there are people with very low VAFs, with diploid cytogenetics, small group, 15, 20%, but they could really benefit from standard induction and transplant. So you really have to look at that TP53 and, again, maybe consult with one of your expert leukemia colleagues before deciding. Yeah, yeah. I think that question actually brings up, um, I mean, it really, you've got to think outside the box. I think it wouldn't be the wrong thing to give a patient like that intensive therapy, but it's awfully tempting yeah. to, get in there, to get in there with um, something IDH-directed. So we're going to launch into another um, case right now. So this is, so we've been focusing on what do you do up front? And it's scary. You have an AML patient, this is still a bad disease. What do you do up front? But now, what do you, you're going to get somebody in remission. That's exciting and great news. Now, what are you going to do? So this is Eleanor. She's 60, newly diagnosed AML and a good performance status. She got intensive chemo. She has an NPM1 mutation. She's got a DNMT3 in there. I put in other numbers to confuse and upset you because that's what happens to me when I get back the reports and there are all these other numbers. So it's a DNMT3 R882. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that medium? Now I have to read three more papers. But there's an intensively treated patient in remission. So how are you going to keep this patient in remission? So there are guidelines, and I made the patient 60 to be annoying because there's less than 60 and then there's greater than or equal to 60, but the point is that 60 is not magical in any way. We don't have magical experiences to guide us. But what we say here is that if you've got a core binding factor um, uh, disease and you're MRD negative, you're probably going to get some type of high-dose um, high and you're going to use gemtuzumab, which has um, a survival benefit. But in intermediate risk disease and or molecular abnormalities, MRD positive, and then you go down to therapy related, well, there are all kinds of dots there. Transplant, high-dose cytarabine, how many cycles of high-dose cytarabine? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? And then afterwards, are you ever done? After consolidation, what about maintenance after consolidation? What about maintenance after uh, transplant? So what I want to launch into a little bit here is um, Uma brought this up a long time ago when we were talking about the Viale study, that venetoclax and azacitidine for older patients goes on forever. Is that a concept? Is that AML now? Does the treatment, in fact, is this hypertension? You're in remission, but in order to stay in remission, it goes on and on. I think for the core binding factor patients, that may not be true. We may actually be able to end therapy if they are, if they are um, MRD uh, negative, but for the rest of these patients, we want to talk about um, about what to what to do even after, for example, allotransplant. Now, here for patients who are older than sixty, you can still do an allotransplant. Of course, they may or may not be eligible for allotransplant, but. The concept of maintenance post-chemotherapy and or post-allotransplant was not really a thing in AML for the longest time. It was definitely a thing in APL, and then it went away. So we don't usually do long-term maintenance in APL anymore. 
But in ALL, there is long-term maintenance. In CML, there is ongoing therapy forever. And now it's back in AML. And why is it back? It's back because of the Quasar trial, which showed a long-term benefit um, in overall survival with oral azacitidine, which is a tolerable drug. And in previous studies for AML, the reason that maintenance went away was not because it's not a good idea, but rather because the therapies didn't add terribly much to overall survival, and they were quite unpleasant to take, and there was a lot of post-remission toxicity and a disease without great overall survival. But here, there actually was the study took a very long time, but there was a benefit um, in uh, overall survival with the addition of oral azacitidine, which was given in a uh, in a tolerable manner. So now maintenance is back. And this was uh, specifically in Quasar, this was given to patients older than 55 who were randomized after they were in remission after having gotten intensive chemotherapy, plus or minus some amount of consolidation. And here you could see that it even independently of the MRD status, there were both overall survival and um, relapse-free survival benefits. You could see that for the MRD-positive patients in particular, those are the ones that we worry about because they usually are destined to relapse. This is flow cytometry-based MRD, or measurable residual disease. These were patients who couldn't go on to a transplant, so patients older than 55 who, for whatever reason, couldn't get a transplant, even if they were MRD positive, they had a benefit with oral uh, ASA, presumably because the drug was able, in fact, to convert some of the patients from MRD positive to MRD negative with ongoing therapy. So now, all of a sudden, you're thinking, okay, you have a patient in remission. We know that the standard of care for cure has been allogeneic stem cell transplant for decades and still is the case, but it's also the case that not everybody can get a transplant, so what else can you do for these patients. In Quasar, these patients were actually um, not uh, cytogenetically good risk patients, but at the time when Quasar started, we didn't even have molecular risk classification um, organized. And in NPM1 mutated patients, um, there was also a, a benefit with oral azacitidine um, maintenance that that uh, I think is quite interesting because NPM1 mutated patients are ones where you really there there isn't a plan usually to do an allogeneic stem cell transplant. In first remission, although some patients still um, d uh, do end up getting one. But here we see now a molecular subgroup, which is also having, um, having a benefit here with ongoing therapy. So safety of this, one of the reasons we're talking maintenance, again, is because you have a drug that you can actually give. No drug is without side effects. Um, and here there are GI effects that do need to be managed. GI side effects in the first couple of cycles are often manageable by the patient kind of figuring out what time, you know, how to take the drug and whether they they take it with an um, antiemetic or whether they use a little bit of um, of something for di for diarrhea. A lot of the patients will explain that in the first two cycles they had toxicity, but then they figured it out. But here again, there are patients on this for a long time. So this gets back to my original point of AML being a disease that now at least has the consideration of ongoing therapy. Now, what about after stem cell? transplant. Are we never done? The patient is supposed to be able to walk on hot coals, get a transplant, and finally be cured. But no, there's more because there are transplanted patients. Maybe they have a TP53. Maybe they're MRD positive. Maybe they had a complex karyotype that didn't fully go away. Those patients, even with transplant, which is our best shot at cure, have very high rates of relapse. So we tried to do things. We tried to do... Um, 
uh, azacitidine. We tried to do this as a phase um, two and then phase three study, actually, of uh, uh, decitabine um, and uh, low-dose GCSF. There are things that we can do after transplant. The Quasar study, again, was oral azacitidine after intensive chemo. So suffice it to say, there are many trials ongoing right now looking at different oral mechanisms of maintenance, either post-chemotherapy or post-allotransplant. Is it oral azacitidine? Is it oral decitabine? Do we add venetoclax? The answer is there are clinical trials ongoing. But wait, what about what about the whole venaza story? So venaza followed by an allotransplant. Do I have the wrong slide? Venaza is supposed to be, and the package insert says these are for patients who aren't supposed to get an allotransplant. And I have questions on the iPad asking me, are patients, are there, what if their patient's not fit enough to get Venaza? Well, actually, there are patients who get very fit after their Venaza, and then you're starting to think about transplant. Here, as a post-remission therapy, the thought is that you can actually go backwards from what I'm saying, and rather than put somebody on a regimen of Venaza forever, take them off and consider doing in selected patients who are older um, and initially frail, but subsequently not frail, doing an allotransplant. This also begs the question of whether or not Venaza can be moved into the um, induction strategy for more fit patients that Amir was talking about earlier. So, we now have lots of post-remission confusion. How much consolidation? Who gets consolidated with intensive chemotherapy? And how to um, use the new recommendation to have oral azacitidine after um, uh, intensive chemo for patients aren't, who aren't going on to a transplant? So I just want to ask um, in our last couple of minutes on this topic, maybe I'll start with Uma, that who might, what would you consider for, uh, for Eleanor, this um, 60-year-old who got um, intensive chemo is in CR? So I think, um, you know, all, all of our institutions are a little um, conflicted with this because technically, like, as you said, if you have an NPM1 mutation, you could potentially be cured with this therapy um, and you're supposed to do well. However, we know that the data for patients who are 60 and older with an NPM1 mutation do not show the same cure rates as younger patients with NPM1 mutations. So there's clearly a role to transplant patients that are older with NPM1 mutations in order to give them that um, good long-term remission survival um, after the AML therapy. With that said, you also showed some really convincing data from the long-term Quasar follow-up. And personally, um, I have several patients like this patient who are not thankfully in their 60s or in their 70s and are not transplant candidates who are doing really well on oral azacitinine maintenance uh, based on Quasar. Um, I will say they do struggle with GI toxicities. They do struggle with diarrhea. And very similar to what you said, they've sort of figured out how to sort of arrange their life around that when they are taking oral azacitidine. So I think it's a, it's a really good option for patients that are not transplant candidates or who may not want to do transplant knowing that, you know, they have a better prognosis, um, although not as good as, say, a younger NPM1 patient. And I want to ask, so MD Anderson is a transplant mecca, but do you guys find that every single patient who should get a transplant gets a transplant, or do you also have patients who are, for whatever reason, not able to, to get on to transplant? Yeah. I mean, we looked at this, actually. The Among transplant-eligible patients, the transplant rate is just about 50%. 
So, you know, uh, it's it's still an issue, financial, logistical, distance from transplant, patient preference. Um, so, no, I think it's a great, um, uh, you know, area to start using maintenance. And as you mentioned, Gail, you know, we're seeing it in all diseases, in myeloma, in lymphoma, in CML. So it makes sense it worked here. Um, and for this patient, though, you know, I kind of agree with Uma, 60, it's a very smart age you chose because one could debate either way. But I think if he had a good donor and if he was healthy and fit, I would probably be a little inclined towards transplant. And then there are trials looking at maintenance post-transplant. Also, we don't know what the DNMT3A is going to add or subtract here. So if it's a pure NPM1, I think it's an easier sell for me to just go for maintenance here. The DNMT3A makes me a little worried. Yeah, Amir, what do you think about that, too? Because, that, you know, it bugs me that, um, I mean, we see an NPM1, and then there are all kinds of other things, and you kind of go, uh, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. In in Europe, or in Germany in particular, right, they have looked at this very carefully. If you have an NPM1, that's going to be considered, that's your driver. They're going to follow. They're going to check. They're going to check um, follow-up PCRs. We have beautiful data recently published for low-copy number NPM1 residual disease that can hang out, even if you have a low-copy number PCR. We have the ELN guidelines. Please read them. Worked very hard on them on MRD guidelines for following, including PCR for NPM1 patients. But in Boston, not in Europe, what do you do if you've got other things than NPM1 on that report? Is that going to drive you to transplant? So Boston, the Europe of the United States in some ways. (laughs) Um, Not so much. Um, no offense to my European colleagues uh, or to my Boston colleagues. Um, so uh, Gail uh, is at the forefront of uh, MPM1 MRD uh, research, and I think a lot of the work that she and her colleagues have done has shed a lot of light in terms of how to approach uh, MPM1 MRD uh, in the uh, trans. I'm sorry, in the uh, maintenance. Uh, phase, but also, you know, in patients who are traditionally uh, getting induction followed by consolidation, and we were, we are still in many ways bound to the level of MPM1 MRD following induction, following a cycle of consolidation to see what we're going to do next. I personally have not seen DNMT3A. I know there's data around it. I have not seen it impact necessarily our approach. And again, our, we're limited in terms of the number compared to a much larger uh, cohort of patients. But that is my general approach. The challenge I have with maintenance is twofold. One is I, I have difficulty, in all honesty, and Gail and I have talked about this before, finding the right patient for oral society maintenance that matches the patient that was studied and the quasar uh, trial, uh, mainly because many of our patients who are induction eligible are also transplant eligible. Now, that changed during COVID because a lot of patients were not as easily um, uh, translated towards transplant uh, because they didn't have donors, the donor didn't show up, there were delays. So that we, we, de- we had situations where uh, maintenance became the right path to go. We also recently had a patient who did not want to get the COVID vaccine, and for that reason, it was difficult to arrange uh, transplant. So that patient, too, is going to go down the path of an NPM1 mutated and an NP53 mutated, by the way, uh, induction, consolidation, and, and hopefully oral, consolida- oral maintenance. The last thing I will just say, the other challenge I have with maintenance is duration, right? So how long are you supposed to uh, continue this? Indefinite is uh, challenging enough for HMA-Ven when it's not really 
permanent, right? Life isn't permanent, and the disease certainly will get you at some point in older patients. In younger patients where you're trying to cure them, it's really hard to swallow indefinite uh, uh, therapy. So we, we, we struggle a lot with that post-transplant and also post-consolidation uh, in terms of maintenance. We have trials at our site for both FLT3 inhibitors and IDH inhibitors, um, but this is a question that comes up every time. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to ask um, Uma to hit the gas a little bit because I actually see some great questions coming into, and I want to make sure that we get to them. So take the floor. Take us through flip-free maintenance. So here we have Eleanor, who is a patient that now, instead of NPM1, has flip-3 mutated AML. She has also achieved remission after standard 7 plus 3 plus mitostorin based on the Ratify study. And the question is, what are the next steps for this patient? Would you transplant this patient? Would you offer maintenance? Um, and so on. And I think if you looked at the data that Naval um, showed for the Ratify study, it was clear that the patients that got the most benefit were actually the patients that moved to allogeneic stem cell transplant. So I think none of us here will argue that Eleanor really should get an allogeneic stem cell transplant. That should be the therapy of choice. That should be her post-maintenance therapy of choice. However, as we've already said, life happens and patients don't always get to transplant. So even at MD Anderson, it's maybe 50%. At some most other centers, it's maybe 20 to 30%. In that case, what would you do? Um, I think, again, if you follow the Ratify algorithm, the patients would go on to get consolidation with intermediate dose cytarabine and mitostorin. And then the question is, would this patient then benefit from some type of maintenance therapy? We already saw the data with the Quasar study and oral ASA. The question is, what about an oral maintenance therapy with the FLT3 inhibitor? So when, when this was looked at in the landmark analysis from the Ratify study, they found that patients who went on maintenance mitostorin versus placebo, so these are patients that what these does not include patients that went to transplant. Those patients were excluded from this landmark analysis. These were patients who were on the study and either continued with mitostorin or placebo. They found that actually there was no difference in disease-free survival for patients that got placebo versus mitostorin. Um, and, and there was no sort of survival benefit for the strategy. So if you look at the package instrument, mitostorin is actually not recommended for maintenance um, in, in terms of the Ratify study. And so we don't truly have an indication for a FLT3 maintenance arm or a FLT3 maintenance strategy right now for patients like Enelor that have achieved remission after intensive induction. There is another study um, that looked at this exact same question called Soramane, where instead of mitostorin, they actually looked at sorafenib. But here the population was patients that were in remission after transplant. So they'd gone to transplant and the same paradigm, you know, continue therapy, therapy forever. They looked at sorafenib versus placebo. They did show that these patients had a relapse-free survival benefit. However, the study was not designed to show an overall survival benefit. And it did show that sorafenib as a maintenance strategy is fairly toxic. I mean, many of you in the room may have used sorafenib for other indications. It's not the easiest drug to continue one um, or two years. So I think there are clearly challenges um, in post-split three maintenance strategies. And we actually have an exciting study, the CTN-1506-MORPHO trial, that is going to look at this question, but now they're going to look at a 
what we think is a much superior TKI in terms of tolerability and efficacy, giltritinib compared to placebo, and is going to answer exactly the question we've been discussing. Is there a benefit to FLT3 inhibition post-transplant? And how do we actually do an MRD-based um, assay? Is it an NGS assay? Do we do something different? Um, and when you have a potent inhibitor like giltritinib, can you actually prevent these um, post-allo relapses with a maintenance strategy? And then last but not the least, let's not forget the Quasar trial. Let's not forget the oral azacitidine strategy, because remember, there was an overall survival benefit to these patients. And as Gail mentioned, we didn't really know what the cytogenetics or the mutations were. They were all sort of either randomized to the, the study drug versus placebo. But um, as many of you, again, may know that FLT3 doesn't usually exist, you know, by itself. There are other co-occurring mutations, and to confound it even further, one-third of patients will co-occur with NPM1 and FLT3. So was it the NPM1 that was driving the benefit because of oral ASA, or was it, you know, something else? So I think there's a lot more sort of studying to be done in this space um, until then, we don't really have a very definitive strategy. I think we can all agree we really want Eleanor to get to a stem cell transplant. Um, what would be, I don't know, I think serafinib has magical properties to it that are <laughs> other than FLT3 inhibition. I think the I, there are beautiful data on this, actually, yep. for the um, immunological side, uh, uh, profile of serafinib in the post-transplant setting. It's not easy to tolerate, but... I think that that, I think the drug has legs and I think that there are, um, it, it's probably not so well known actually that these randomized data are out there. That said, if gilteritinib will be a lot easier, I think that's going to replace it. What's standard at MD Anderson these days for FLT3 maintenance? We have a trial of uh, gilteritinib post uh, transplant that we're using, but I actually have this same doubt and question, you know, I mean, I hope the gilteritinib study is positive. And it's clearly positive, but I think that there's something to serafinib beyond the FLT3. And not think, as you said, there was a Nature paper from a group in Germany showing beautiful CD8 activation. So we'll have to see. Hopefully both are positive, and then we can use the optimal drug. But for now, we're using GIRT in the trial setting. For you guys? We do uh, FLT3 inhibitor maintenance following transplant. Um, we did serafinib for such a long period of time, and more recently because we uh, one of our uh, investigators is uh, one of the leads on the Morpho study have been doing uh, gilteritinib uh, maintenance post-transplant. And I I don't know. I mean, I, it almost feels to me that our FLT3 mutated patients that go to transplant, I don't see them much anymore come back. And that yeah. that is... Uh, that, that is a great thing. That yeah. is an amazing thing, right? I mean, as of 10 years ago, yeah. they used to always bounce back. Okay, so one of the hardest questions of the night I'm going to put in right here, which is should we doing uh, should we be doing MRD routinely for patients in CR to guide all of this magic that we're talking about? So I want to unpack a couple of things. How come it is that in every guidelines paper, we write clearly on the leukemia side that FLT3 is not an MRD marker to follow, and somehow our transplant colleagues, I believe, view this rather differently. And I think that there is a sense that if you're FLT3 undetectable, maybe they don't put on an inhibitor. How do you use, do you agree with the statement FLT3 is not an MRD marker? And for your FLT3 mutated patients, you are putting them on uh, a maintenance agent irrespective of mutational status post-transplant. He's nodding. You're nodding. Are you nodding? 
Yeah, I knew it. So, um, always uh, well, everybody gets FLT3 inhibitor at my site uh, pretty much, but uh, it is an MRD when it comes to FLT3. So in my view, because FLT3 mutated AML is oftentimes quite heterogeneous, just because you have undetected FLT3 MRD does not mean your disease isn't rip-roaring, right? So we've all seen patients who have relapsed FLT3 wild type, right? Um, but if you're worried about that FLT3 being persistent, uh, I agree that adding FLT3 inhibitor or even increasing the dose of FLT3 inhibitor makes sense to try and suppress that proliferative clone. You know, I wanted to make a comment. I mean, I, I think it's tricky. So I do think FLT3 has MRD value in the setting of FLT3 inhibitors. So we've actually shown now Giltritinib, Mark Levis, and Sasha showed that if you achieve clearance, you have improved survival. It's not curative. And I think that's the distinction. It, it can improve your survival, and that's good, but eventually other clones come up. But in the setting of post-transplant, you're right. We don't use it to select therapy. So there's kind of MRD eradication is good. Yes, that's true in more cases, even for FLT3. But is it a marker that I would use to select or not? And the reason may be the sensitivity. Unless you have a 10 raised to minus 6, 7 sensitivity, you know it's completely eradicated. Most of us, ours is like 10 raised to minus 3. Most centers are around that range. Then it may be there at a low level. So it's it's nuanced. So what I, I was that, trying to... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I agree with that because if you look at the Soramane study data, what it showed is the patients that did the best on Soramane were the patients that pre-transplant had no detectable FLT3 or had detectable FLT3 post allo Those were the patients that actually benefited the most from maintenance sorafenib. So I think it's, it's a complicated sort of question, and it may go back to what you said um, about sorafenib. Maybe it has other things that it does other than FLT3 inhibition. So this conversation led me to kind of exactly where I was hoping. <laughs> the question was a trick. Right, because the question was, should we be monitoring MRD routinely in CR? And everybody should have said, well, what do you mean by that? Because MRD of what? Am I talking about flow cytometry-based? Am I talking about PCR-based? PCR is for NPM1. We talked about that earlier. NPM1-mutated patients would be followed by quantitative PCR in the post-remission setting with data. Following MRD by flow cytometry, totally different story, serial measurements of flow cytometry, you're getting reports back one times, you know, 0 0.1, 0 0.01, one times 10 to the fourth. What is MRD by flow? And then there is a whole different discussion for sequencing, and the sequencing platforms that are used at the time of initial diagnosis are not at the sensitivity that's going to be required for the post-remission setting. So my intent was to have this kind of complicated discussion of, sure, you're look, is the FLT3 there? Having a FLT3 there is not going to be a good thing. That's a different question, though, from checking it every month, checking it in the blood, checking it in the bone marrow, checking it by sequencing, checking it by PCR. It's really hard. And I think that's a whole different symposium, which we will be starting in 10 minutes and you're not getting a break. So before we do that, I am going to go 
on, however, because I want to make sure that we cover um, the topic of uh, relapsed refractory AML, and then I want to get to some of the specific questions here, and there are more on MRD. We have a couple of minutes. So what happens in relapsed refractory AML, which is a very, very hard thing, and what I want to do is give each of you one of the scenarios. So you have somebody, let's say like Allison, 66, she had the de novo and multiple comorbidities, and she got, let's say she got a so UMA for her, relapse. We know what she got up front. What are your options? And clinical trial, by the way, is always the right answer. So you guys don't have to say it. Okay. So um, with her, I think, you know, I presented the VLEC data and for somebody like her who's already had treatment with a hypomethylating agent, I do think I would probably favor doing a low-dose cytarabine plus VIN strategy. Um, I personally um, am not a huge fan of geo-based therapy, though that is an option, especially if the patient is rapidly proliferating, give them a, giving them one dose of, you know, gemtuzumab, ozocomycin can rapidly bring down the counts. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's always things you can do with chemotherapy. You can dose it as low or high as you want. You can do cytarabine at various doses, um, you know, without, without venetoclax. And so there's multiple other things that you can do. But I think my preference would be um, low-dose RSC plus then. And Amir, for the IDH patient, 72, IDH1. So let's say you went with Ivo-Aza up front, but now we relapse. Now what happens? So, uh, you know, this is like one of those situations where uh, I would do something based on no data whatsoever. I would switch <laughs> uh, switch the Aza to Decidabine and give Vent, or even do the, uh, uh, you know, 10-day Decidabine and give Vent, see if I can get some mileage out of that. And now we have Allison with a flip three mutation. And let's say she was treated at MD Anderson and she got a triplet up front. Now what are you going to do? Yeah. So I think um, if we have a relapse, let's say she got Azaven gilt So if she had Azaven, then I would probably do Ven gilt And there's data for that, that we can get responses. Let's say she had Azaven gilt I think this is where drugs like Wizartnib and others need to be evaluated. Can you do combinations, whether it's with intensive chemo quiz or with venetoclax Wizartnib? And I think that's probably what we would do. But this would be a, a great patient for a clinical trial. I think that would be the best shot here. I'm going to give myself the last one. So Can I, um, can I just add one quick thing yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just to piggyback off novel on that one? A lot of times when people progress on FLT3 inhibitors, it's because of TKD uh, emergence. So one thing to just also keep in mind is that there's lots of TKIs out there that may not may or may not hit the TKD of interest. Uh, so that may give you another option because this is something we run into all the time, panatinib and cabozantinib. A lot of these TKIs can hit uh, some of the resistance TKD mutations. And I wanted to add for my patient, originally she had no targetable mutation, but I would always repeat mutational testing in case yeah. she did this time. So we're assuming I did that and there were no targetable mutations. Yeah. So I bring that point up for um, for uh, this last patient, too. So with an NPM1 um, mutated patient who um, had intensive chemotherapy and then got orally azacitidine uh, maintenance, again, redoing the mutational testing, um, as Uma just said, is so important to make sure that what you're dealing with that's come back is is the same as before, and often it isn't. And I think it would be tempting to offer this patient some kind of uh, venetoclax-based uh, salvage, um, again, hopefully on a trial. So to try to get through as many as possible, um, 
would I give uh, oral azacitidine after three or four cycles of consolidation? Well, that can be interpreted in a couple of ways. Is the Am I being asked whether I use three or four, or am I being asked whether I would use it after either of those? And it's a subtle question because we don't actually know how many cycles of consolidation is the right number. Oral azacitidine, the Quasar trial, is for older patients than 55. There has never been shown to be a survival benefit for four cycles of high-dose cytarabine or for three cycles of high-dose cytarabine for those patients the way that it had for younger patients getting high-dose cytarabine. So I think that's where some of the confusion is. But the bottom line is that was not a study that was designed to say how much consolidation to use. I don't personally give patients over 64 cycles of um, high-dose cytarabine consolidation. You can consolidate that patient with whatever you would normally consolidate with and then start azacitidine. But if the question is, well, I've already given all of the consolidation, should I still go on with oral aza? We believe the answer to that is yes. It's very difficult to subgroup that, but we have some data to suggest that it's yes. Um, and I would say give the consolidation, and then if the patient's a candidate for oral ASA, just do it, and don't necessarily focus on the number of cycles. Should we be doing MRD um, routinely? So I'm going to say controversially for that, yes, flow cytometry-based MRD can be done on everybody. Repeating mutational um, testing on everybody at random intervals, be careful. It's expensive. It may not be covered for the patient. You may not know what to do with the results. And I would say, um, have a look at Chris Hergen's data that are being uh, presented at ASCO. Novel, is there an argument for some kind of maintenance in TP53, assuming that the patient is responding to something? Yeah, I think your hypertension analogy is a good one. I mean, assuming, let's say, CD47 or even HMA VEN, I mean, that's a group we would really never stop therapy when we're talking about 15% survivals long-term. Yeah, you just keep going as long as you can pre- and post-transplant. Um, okay. Uh, Amir, was there a crossover in the Agile trial? Um, not that I know of. I don't think so. I don't think it was. And uh, Uma, are there patients who are too frail for ven there, I, I think this is controversial because some folks think there's never anybody who's too frail for Venaza. I personally think there are patients that are too frail for Venaza. And uh, just a reminder that um, for IDH mutated patients, IDH1 mutated patients, there is an FDA approved indication for ibocidinib as single agent therapy um, for up, in the upfront setting. And I will say we have used it for patients who truly we think the cytopenias will be so um, severe, because like, as you, you remember, I said, you know, Veneza has a six to 7% mortality in the first 30 days. So six or seven patients out of the hundred patients may not survive. So I do think that that is the case. Uh, we just don't have great options for them right now. Um, I would like to thank everyone for staying um, to the end. I'm so excited to to be back in a live audience. The questions were great. We really hope that you um, enjoyed the presentation and will contact us for questions and collaboration and um, uh, and have a great rest of the meeting. And thank you very much. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. 
Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NVX860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Servier Pharmaceuticals, LLC.